You're listening to the Restless Wanderer podcast by Paul Coulter, and this is part three of a series in the book of Esther. Esther chapter three, verse one. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down and or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. We'll pause our reading after verse 6 of Esther chapter 3. Now, just to remind you, what we've seen already in the book of Esther is uh, in chapter one, King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes as he's known to history, is throwing a party in the third year of his reign, which we know is the year when he finally brought his kingdom to a stable place after coming to power amidst some uh, uh, rivalry. And uh, then Queen Vashti refuses to come to his drunken party to be shown off as a trophy. Uh, the king is angry uh, and at the advice of people puts out a, a decree that says uh, that hus wives should obey their husbands. And then in chapter two, when his anger has settled down, uh, he follows the advice of some young advisors to do basically a beauty pageant uh, to discover the most beautiful young woman in the kingdom. Uh, Esther is taken into that system, a, 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 an orphaned Jewish girl who's been brought up by her relative Mordecai. Uh, and she rises to the top and is made queen, the, the, the key, the, the, the lead queen amongst all of um, the king's um, harem. Uh, and she stays in touch with Mordecai and Mordecai at the end of chapter two uncovers a plot against the king, informs the king through Esther. And that's all recorded in the Chronicles. And as I said at the end of the last episode, we might have expected chapter three to begin with Mordecai being promoted. But there's a twist. It's not Mordecai who is promoted, but a different man, Haman the Agagite. Now, that label might not mean a lot to you if you're not uh, able to identify who Agag was. Um, uh, but Agag is a, another biblical character, as I've said before in the first episode in this series, although Esther doesn't mention the name of God, uh, the book really is hard to understand without the wider context of the story of the Old Testament. And Agag was the king of the Amalekites. He was uh, spared by King Saul. Remember, we saw that Haman, uh, Mordecai, rather, when we were looking at chapter two, Mordecai is a descendant of Kish. Saul was also a son of a man called Kish, both from the tribe of Benjamin. So we've seen that Mordecai is loosely related to King Saul, the first king of Israel. Agag was a king of the um, Amalekites during the 
reign of King Saul. And um, they... That, that's not just a, a coincidence that Agag was the king. Actually, uh, King Saul uh, waged war against the Amalekites. Now, the Amalekites were a, a tribe who had uh, turned against the Israelites while the Israelites were traveling in the desert. So in Exodus chapter 17, we read that the Amalekites came and fought against the Israelites at a place called Rephidim. Um, and this seems to be an unprovoked attack. This tribe is deliberately trying to make things difficult for the Israelites as they journey in the wilderness. Joshua um, takes on the, the role of general uh, under Moses, who's leading God's people, and he fights against the Amalekites. And in quite a dramatic event, Moses has to hold up his hands for the Israelites to prevail. He's helped by Aaron and her. But at the end of that, um, we're, we're told at the end of that passage in Exodus 17, verse um, 16, uh, that Moses, verse 15, Moses builds an altar. He calls it, the Lord is my banner. And he says, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. Um, the Lord will have war against Am Amalek from generation to generation. And in verse 14, the preceding verse, it says that God says to Moses, he will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. In other words, because of how the Amalekites in an unprovoked attack have set themselves on God's people, God has declared doom on the Amalekites uh, and this perpetual battle with the Amalekites. Now, Agag is a king of Amalek. In fact, it may have been a name of numerous kings of the Amalekites because in Numbers 24, verse 7, we have a reference to uh, Agag and we're told that Israelites, Israel's king will be higher than Agag. Uh, that's a, a prophecy of Balaam, the, 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 the prophet. Um, and so it seems there was a king called Agag in the time when Numbers was happening, uh, which would have been uh, still the time of um, Moses. But uh, then in 1 Samuel 15, we read about the king uh, Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And that chapter is highly significant because it begins with Samuel telling Saul that God is telling him to destroy the Amalekites in fulfilment of what we read about in, in, in Exodus chapter 17. Here are the words of God that Samuel speaks to Saul. I've noted what Amalek did to Israel in imposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And Saul um, initially seems to obey. He goes out to fight against the Amalekites. He defeats them. Uh, and then he takes his, it says in verse 8, he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. So you see that Saul does not obey the command that God gives him through Samuel. And the response is that God says to Samuel, I regret I've made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And so Samuel goes to Saul and tells him uh, that he has been disobedient. Uh, Samuel goes on himself to execute Agag. 
uh, later on in the same chapter. Saul gives an excuse, by the way. He he says that he did obey God. He, he fulfilled the mission, but that he had kept the sheep and oxen for sacrifices to God. Uh, it doesn't explain why he didn't kill Agag. Uh, and we're probably supposed to think that Saul's just making up a story. Really, the reason why he kept the, the best animals was that he fancied them for himself. But even if it was true that he was planning to sacrifice them to God, um, that's not what God commanded. God didn't ask him to do that. And, and Samuel says, has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices to obey is better than sacrifice. So here is Saul, who at the very best is trying to take it on himself to interpret what God wants. At the worst is trying to feather his own nest uh, whilst pretending to be obedient to God. Samuel will have none of it. And Samuel fulfills what God had commanded by executing Agag. Now, Haman, back to Esther, is either a descendant of Agag or where he's called an Agagite because he's like Agag in terms of his character. So it's possible that he's not really a descendant of Agag. We might wonder how did Agag have descendants if he was executed by Samuel? And of course, it's possible that he already had sons who were off in some safe place and weren't executed. Uh, in fact, there, I think there's a, a tradition that says that in that one day between Saul sparing Agag and Agag being executed by Samuel, that he uh, conceived with a, a woman, uh, the son who would become the ancestor of Haman. In other words, if Saul had obeyed God immediately, then uh, is the Jews would have been spared what Haman plans to do to them. Now, whether that, that seems a bit fanciful, doesn't it? But anyway, here is Haman, who is at least like Agag, uh, possibly even a descendant of Agag. And here is Mordecai, who refuses to bow down to Haman, not just once, but repeatedly. Uh, and the king's servants say, why are you transgressing the king's command? And he explains it to them. And part of that explanation is that he tells them that he's a Jew. And Haman, of course, is enraged by this, and he decides to try and destroy the Jews. Now, why is it that Mordecai won't bow down to Haman? Uh, after all, it, it doesn't seem that there's a problem in the Old Testament for Jewish people giving honour to kings, even when those kings are pagan rulers. Uh, Genesis 42 tells us uh, about an example. Even Esther chapter 8 has uh, Mordecai himself receiving honour. So it doesn't seem that there's a, an absolute problem with giving honour to a pagan ruler. That's not the issue. So why does Mordecai not bow down? Well, we're simply not told. There is something intriguing here in that the king issues a command that says that people should bow down to Haman. You sort of think, well, was that necessary? I mean, this king does seem to give some unnecessary commands, but maybe it was necessary because the people wouldn't have done it otherwise. Maybe Haman does not have widespread respect. Maybe there is something about this man and his actions that causes a man of integrity like Mordecai to refuse to bow down to him. We don't know. Has 
Haman behaved badly towards Mordecai. Has he, is he an unworthy man, unworthy of this position? Certainly, as we find out more about his character, we find that he's a ruthless man, an arrogant man. After all, in verse 6, he seeks to destroy the whole people of Mordecai simply because he's annoyed with Mordecai himself. He's filled with fury. This is a man of great hubris. So maybe there's something about Haman. Maybe it's because of Haman's ancestry. Maybe if Mordecai knows that he's an Agagite, then Mordecai, as a descendant of Israel, is not going to bow down to a people whom God has declared himself to be against. Uh, and perhaps that might explain why Mordecai tells the people who investigate that he is a Jew, if that's uh, if verse four, uh, this, the end of verse four is correct. It says he told them that he was a Jew, although I think it's possible that that could be translated that it was reported to them. It might not be Mordecai who tells them, but if it is Mordecai who tells them, as this translation suggests, then maybe that was his explanation that a Jewish person could not bow down to a descendant of Agag or to a man like Mordecai. Uh, the other thing then to notice here is that there is uh, uh, clearly a, a suspicion of Jew Jewish people. We saw it in chapter two that um, Mordecai told Esther not to tell people about her ethnicity and, and she kept that secret. And whenever Mordecai tells of his ethnicity, that is a significant factor in why Haman is enraged with him. And Haman clearly doesn't take much for him to turn against not just Mordecai, but all of Mordecai's people, the Jews. It suggests that Haman already had a prejudice against Jews. It suggests that that prejudice was not just with Haman, but with others in the Persian Empire. Uh, and this has now created a very volatile and dangerous situation. So we don't know why Mordecai doesn't bow down. We can speculate about that, but we do know that the consequences of that are that there is now a threat to all of the Jewish people who, as I've said already in this series, were living in the um, really almost entirely, if not entirely, within the boundaries of the Persian Empire. So Haman, as a high official uh, who is above all the other officials who were with him. So he's a significant uh, man now with authority in the empire. He, he, he could, if he's able to carry out this uh, intent, could destroy the Jewish people, could, could cut off the, the great story of Israel that God is working out his purposes through. So, whether Mordecai was wise to refuse to bow down, is he simply maintaining integrity, being an upright man? Has he uh, been a little bit foolish in making an issue that now is going to have bigger ramifications than he could have realised? We don't know. But the fact is that the scene is set for Haman to seek to destroy, destroy the Jews. It is significant that it's not just because Haman disobeys the king's command. Haman's problem is not, or sorry, Mordecai disobeys the king's command. Mordecai's problem is not primarily Ahasuerus, the king, who, who doesn't seem to know about this transgression or perhaps even to care. Uh, and that may also be part of it that, you know, actually lots of people didn't bow down. It was kind of expected, but nobody really minded too much if people didn't do it. But Haman, uh, the, the issue for Mordecai is Haman himself. 
It's not that Haman is incensed because Mordecai has disobeyed the king. He's incensed because Mordecai has refused to show him honour. This is a man of, of great ego. Let's read on then. Ezra, or sorry, Esther chapter 3, verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. We'll pause our reading there after verse 11 of Esther chapter 3. Verse 7 tells us that um, Haman decided to get lots cast called Pur. Uh, a lot is called Pur. Um, Purim is the plural of that, which becomes the name of a feast for the Jews later on in the book of Esther. But Pur is, is a lot. Uh, and in fact, it takes from the, um, the month of Nisan, the first month, until the twelfth month for the, the right date to come up. So what, what Haman is doing here is looking for an auspicious date. That might seem very foreign to us. And for him to wait almost a whole year before he goes to the king when he is so furious in verse 5, uh, that might seem odd to us. But there are two reasons why that's not odd. First of all, because superstition governs Haman's life. Um, that might not be familiar to us, this idea of auspicious dates in the Western world, but my wife is Chinese Malaysian and I know that uh, there are members of her wider family who would believe in similar superstitions. When it comes to choosing dates for weddings and so on, you try and find an auspicious date. So, so this is quite uh, quite likely or quite possible in a, in a culture like Haman's, this level of suspicion uh, or superstition. But the other thing is, of course, that Haman, the reason why he wants to get the right date is that he can't just go to the king at any point. This king, as we've seen already, has got a, an ego a bit like Haman's. Haman's ego is easily bruised, so is King Ahasuerus's. Haman wants to try and find the right date when he's most likely to have favour with the king, and that's what he, he does in verse 7. And then uh, Haman comes to the king with his, with his uh, suggestion. There is this people who, who really aren't to your prophet. They're not obeying your laws. They set themselves apart from other people. They're scattered across your, your empire. Now, of course, there's a lot of truth in what he's saying. The Jewish people are scattered across the empire. Uh, some of them have gone back to Jerusalem. Some are living in Babylon, where they had been exiled to. But others are scattered across different provinces, including in Susa itself, where Mordecai and Esther are. 
Uh, but the idea that they're not keeping the king's laws, well, that's not strictly true. The, the, the Jews in exile did keep the laws of the lands which they went to. Mordecai is a loyal citizen. We saw that in his defence of the king. They are not insurrectionists. Yes, whenever the laws of those kingdoms uh, clashed with the law of God, as they did for Daniel and his friends in the book of Daniel, they refused to bow to the king's laws. The faithful Jews did, but they weren't insurrectionists. They weren't people who were unruly or um, difficult to govern. They were contributing to the good of the empire, just as the prophet Jeremiah had told them to, as God did through Jeremiah. So there is a partial truth. And then, of course, there is a, a lie. And then there's an enticement. It's not to the king's profit. And, and if it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I'll pay you, basically, 10,000 talents of silver. A talent is about 34 kilograms, 75 pounds. So this is a vast amount of silver that Haman promises to the king. Uh, to give to the, the, the men who have charge of the king's business to be put in the king's treasuries. <laughs> Haman is very subtle, isn't he, in enticing the king. And so the king takes his signet ring and he gives it to Haman, giving him the authority to enact what Haman has planned. Uh, and the money is given to you, the people as well, to do as seems good to you. So the king will give Haman the resources to eliminate the Jews. And we might wonder how is uh, Haman going to pay this immense debt to the king, the 10,000 talents of silver? It seems that the most likely way is that he's going to seize it from the Jewish people who he is going to eliminate. That might make us think of those horrific uh, scenes of the Holocaust that we've seen in documentaries and, and dramas of how uh, the, the possessions of the Jewish people killed by the Nazis were seized. That's probably how Haman anticipates this happening. So in other words, this elimination of the Jews will be, he says, to the king's benefit and it will be to his personal benefit too. Presumably he can keep some of what he seizes so long as he gives what he's promised to the king. And this weak king, Ahasuerus, who we've seen is so easily bent by whoever happens to have his ear at the point, who always seems to be following the advice of others, he abdicates his responsibility. He hands over the royal signet ring, giving him a, a remarkable degree of freedom, not even asking the identity of the people that Haman is going to eliminate. That's how uninterested this king is, how aloof he is from his responsibilities. This is the epitome of the bad king, a bad ruler who uh, is just interested in his own comfort and position and wealth, uh, a ruler who doesn't care for his people or pay attention to them, for whom the nations under his rule are merely pawns in his own game. So let's read on then the rest of Esther chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Hasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, 
women and children in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. That's the end of our reading, the end of, of uh, Esther chapter 3, finishing at verse 15. So here, as often in the book of Esther, we have a, a written text, an edict that is written by the king's scribes. And uh, it's sent out and it's they're summoned on the 13th day of the first month, which I assume means this is the next year. So the um, it's in the 12th month uh, that Adar, that Haman comes to the king, according to verses seven and eight, or at least arranges to see the king after this almost a year of casting lots to find an auspicious date. He finally does that in the, the last month of the year. On the 13th day of the first month, the next month, uh, he makes the edict. So whether the king uh, took some time before he made the arrangement with Haman uh, or whatever reason, there's a slight delay. But that delay is significant because the first month is the month in which Passover falls. Indeed, Passover falls on the 15th day of Nisan, the Hebrew month of Nisan. And, and here is something happening on the 13th day, the day before the day of preparation. So for a Jewish reader, this is full of significance. Why? Because what is Passover commemorating? It's commemorating the deliverance of God's people from their enemy. In the time of Moses, the, uh, is the Egyptians. And here are the people of God again, subject to an enemy. Is God going to deliver them? So whether Haman knew that it was Passover or not, uh, the date is significant. In fact, the beginning of the casting of lots in verse 7 is in the month uh, of Nisan as well, the first month. Uh, and it seems that Haman, unbeknown to him, is, is acting out God's purpose. I mean, we read it in scripture that God uh, is the one who is who who ordains the lots and how they fall. That's found in the book of Proverbs 16, verse 33. Haman thinks that he's following the, uh, the, the gods who he worships in his superstition, but God, the true God, is sovereignly working out the timing of these things. Uh, and even the, the fact that the proclamation, the edict, is written on the uh, 13th of Nisan, two days before the Passover, as the Jews are beginning to prepare for it, might be a sign to them to trust in God's deliverance. The letter goes out by courier telling the people to destroy. A date is set, the 13th day of the 12th month. That's 11 months after the edict is written down. Uh, a year after the audience that Haman has with the king. Uh, and that their goods are going to be plundered, verse 13, which again suggests that's where the money is going to come from. Uh, and of course, I've said already that Ahasuerus is the epitome of a bad ruler. And we see that working out because the, the, the chapter ends in verse 15 with the king and Haman sitting down to drink, which is what the king seems to love to do more than anything else. 
Uh, but the city is thrown into confusion. Bad leaders confuse their people. They give no clarity of direction. They don't bring stability. They only breed confusion. The people are confused. Why is this decree being issued? What is it going to mean? It's not only the Jews who are disturbed by this. It is all of the people. And of course, there is a huge irony here. Here is King Ahasuerus, whose life, as we read at the end of chapter two, has been saved by a Jew, whose treasured wife, who he finds such delight in, is a Jew, although he doesn't know it. And here, without even finding out, without even realising which people it is that Haman is going to destroy, he's he's endorsed something. He's given authority to a, an evil man. And here he sits down to drink while his citadel is in chaos. What a contrast to the God who rules over the universe. What a contrast to the Lord Jesus the servant king of God. What a contrast to the way Christians are called to exercise authority in as much as it is given to them. Here is a hurried order, a confusing decree, a disturbance, uh, the, the semblance of personal gain dressed up as being for the good of the stability of the empire. It's a, a, a tragic story that's been played out throughout human history with ruthless, selfish, self-aggrandizing leaders. But the hint is here with the connection with the date of Passover that God might be about to deliver his people in a dramatic way. And we'll have to read on to find out because the chapter ends with a cliffhanger. The citadel is in confusion. What's going to happen next?